his desire for his people. And we're, we're going to actually look at Deuteronomy. I didn't bring notes, but you guys have got apps, haven't you? Or Bibles of some description, preferably Christian Bible. That's always helpful. Um, we're looking at Deuteronomy and sta- uh, in chapter 10 and starting from verse 12. And this, at this point in Scripture... God is speaking to Moses and he's setting up for um, Israel, for this new nation of Israel who are in, ex, uh, in the Exodus at the moment. He's setting up for them um, a description of what he wants them to look like, who he wants them to be. He's basically, he's brought them out of Egypt, he's brought them out of slavery, he's brought them out of oppression, he's brought them into this Exodus and they're heading to the promised land but he wants to set them up in this moment, in the Exodus, to be the people that will represent him to the world around around them. So he's setting them up as a nation that's quite different from any other nation. Uh, and he's setting them up to be representations of his character. And this is what it says. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today your own good. I love that. So he's, he's going, I need you to obey me and observe all the commands and decrees that I'm giving you because that is the best thing for you. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, to the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt." Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. I love this passage of scripture because he's given this description. And he's going... This is who I want you to be. And there's talk of where they've come from, who they've been, and who they will be. They they were loved. Their forefathers were loved. God loved them. He brought them in. They were 70 when they came to Egypt. Now they're numerous. And he's, he's basically describing the blessing that he has placed on them. But in the midst of that, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to care for landless people. And he describes the landless people in three ways. The orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Those are the three things to describe landless people. The reason that he he points out landless people is because by the time Israel get to the promised land, they're all going to get inheritance. They're going to go there. The tribes are going to be all split up and and separated. They're going to get land, and they're going to be able to survive because they've got land. Because they've got land, they can grow their own crops, they can sustain themselves, they can be looked after because the land will provide for them. But there are people who will come amongst them from time to time, and in fact all the time, 
who will not be able to do that because they're not going to have inheritance. And so what he's saying to them is, I want for you to look out for those people, the landless people, and ensure that they are looked after. And then he gives the caveat and the reason why. Because you were once landless in Egypt. And I love this because it gives what it gives us is a description and an insight into the character and the heart of God. He's basically saying, this is how I want you to behave to others, but I'm not telling you to do it just because I reckon you should. He's going, I want you to do it because that's what I did for you. So I want for you to be the very ones who display my character, my behavior, my heart, the very thing that I gave to you, I want for you to be the ones who just display that to the broken and the dying world around you. And that is what's going to set you apart as my people in a nation, in a, a world that has nations surrounding you that are entirely different and entirely other. Now, the thing, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> the thing that... Um, that amazes me, I think, when I look at this and when I start to self-reflect and I start to self-reflect not just on me but also on God's people here in Australia is that we tend to make an effort to try and be like the people around us, yeah? We don't want to be weirdos, right? And, and because it's not, it's not popular these days um, to have a faith, it's not popular to be, especially to be Christian, like, you know, other faiths are popular, but Christianity is not. Um, what we tend to do is we start to try and look like and act like the nations, for want of a better word, around us. And what God is doing here is he's going, don't look like them, don't behave like them. Don't act like them. Because if you do, then you won't be seen as being people who represent my character. What he's essentially saying is, my character is entirely other. It's entirely different from every other nation or people on the earth. And so I need for you to represent me so that you can be different and then people will see me. Because if you're the same, they won't see me, they won't know me, and they won't understand my character. I mean, it's, it's basic really, right? Something internally within us says, I, don't, I want to be liked, I want to be accepted. And so we allow ourselves to look and feel the same. When in actual fact, the countercultural heart of God is so profoundly attractive and so profoundly likable that when we genuinely follow him and we genuinely display his character to the world around us, it is incredibly intoxicating to them. Because God himself is generous, yeah? He is counterculturally generous. He's counterculturally loving. He's counterculturally merciful. He's counterculturally giving. He gives and he is hospitable and he looks after and he cares for. And when people like the people of Israel cry out to him and say, get us out of this slavery, Get us out of this captivity. Get us out of this oppression. He comes and he responds. And it's incredibly intoxicating for people to be able to see someone who's countercultural counter like that and who loves in a countercultural way, who has a character that is entirely counter 
the normal selfishness that we experience in our, in our daily lives and our culture. Now, I look at that and I think, man, this is the answer for the church, <laughs> really. If we decided that we were going to just focus our mission on representing the same countercultural character of God to the world around us, we'd be a million miles ahead of where we are now. A million miles. Because God is intoxicating. It's profound how intoxicating he is. I think about the, um, the, just the notion of generosity for, as an example. People are wowed by generosity because we live in a, in a world that goes take and keep, yeah? Earn and whatever is yours is yours. We live in a world that goes uh, my rights and my employment and, you know, the, the law and the rules and all of that. And then when you find someone who goes, oh, no, hang all of that, I'm just going to be generous, people go, ooh. It actually stands out, yeah? It's something people notice and they go, oh, what the heck? This is weird. I remember this um, this time, and it was a while ago now, um, where uh, I was out with the kids, uh, my husband and the kids, and we were out at an incredibly classy restaurant that costs a lot of money. It's called Sophia's. And, um, and I don't know why, but for some reason, the manager of the place, her name's Mary, for some reason, she feels the need to constantly tell us all her stuff. And so we'll come in and we'll sit down. And we, we're sitting there having our dinner and she'll walk up and she'll go, oh, darling, oh, darling, my day. Oh, my day. Oh, the customers, oh. And she'll complain. She'll say, oh, they come in here. They never say anything. Uh, they, they never say please. They never say thank you. Oh, darling, my day, my day, you know. And, uh, and she'll be always telling me this stuff. We're sitting there this one night. We'd, Mary had had a little debrief that she normally has. We'd eaten our dinner. And the kids need to go to the toilet. And so my husband went off to take them to the loo. And I'm sitting there just waiting for them to come back before we got up to pay our bill. And as I'm sitting there and I look across the other side of the restaurant, there's a woman sitting there with her son, I assume. And they're just sitting there quietly. They weren't talking. It didn't look like they'd had a fight or anything like that. But she just looked really sad. She just looked downcast, you know. And she just looked like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders. So she's just sitting there and she's eating her food and her son's sitting there quietly eating his food. And something within me just went, they need blessing, you know? So Lucas comes back to the table and I said to him, I think we need to pay for that woman's meal. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, great. This, this is my husband when it comes to money. Yeah, oh, great. Yeah, I want to buy a car that's $3,000 more than what you've got. Yeah, great, no worries. Um, that happened this week, <laughs> which is why Kelly's laughing. Um, and, you know, so it's all, it's all cool. So I go, okay. So we go up to the counter and the others go to get in the car and I said to Mary, um, can I pay my bill? And so she's putting that together. And, oh, how was your meal, darling? And then I said, can I pay for that woman's meal as well for her and her son? And she goes, do you know them? And I went, no. And she goes, why would you want to pay for their meal? Like, did you go and speak to them? Does she need you to pay for her meal? I said, I don't know. She goes, did you talk to her? I went, no. She goes, but she doesn't even know your name. And I said, yeah. And she goes, do you want me to go and tell her that you're paying for her meal? I said, no. When she comes up to pay for her meal, just tell her it's been looked after. She goes, why? 
And she's standing there just with this look of absolute shock. Why would you do that? Like, nobody does that, you know? I'm going, it's Sophia's. It's not like it's going to break the bank, right, you know? And, you know, it's 25 bucks or something. And she's, she's just shocked. And as I was standing there in that moment, thinking to myself that the Holy Spirit had prompted me to bless this other woman by paying for her meal, it occurred to me that the Holy Spirit had asked me to do it, not for her, but for Mary. Because her eyes started welling up with tears. And she's looking at me going, I don't know anybody who would do this. You know? Now, I didn't use the moment for a God conversation. We've had them since. She's not forgotten it. She keeps bringing it up. Every time she gets a new employee, she goes, oh, come over here, darling, and meet this lovely lady Heather. And let me tell you a story about it. You know, this is what she does now. But there was something within her that went, who on earth would do this? And guess what? God would. No, normal people don't do that. No, there's nothing special about me. It's just simply that God is a generous God and he gives above and beyond to people that don't know him. As, as we've already heard today. Don't know him, don't care about him. But he gives and he's generous and he's counterculturally generous and he counterculturally gives. He counterculturally looks for the ones who don't have and he provides for them. He counterculturally looks for the landless and he says, make sure you ones who are part of the inheritance that you go out of your way to ensure that the ones who are not are cared for. And the ones who have the, 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 the worst prospects in life that you are placing yourselves out there for them. Now, that could be in any situation ever. But my bent is what he called Lucas and I into oh, seven years ago. And that is that he showed us his heart for the vulnerable children of this nation. 48 now, 48,000 kids in this country are in out-of-home care. There's 48,000 children in this country are not sleeping in the bed of their biological parents tonight, in a bed in that house. They're in someone else's home. They're in uh, a residential care unit with other teenagers because there can't be, uh, there's no place found for them. Or they're in a foster care arrangement or they're in a kinship care arrangement. Kids who are not able to stay with their biological parents for various reasons. And when I look at our country today, there is nothing closer to landless and the orphan than that. These guys never chose it, right? They didn't choose the situation. They're out on their own. And they're in all of these, um, these situation, family situations or living arrangements where they didn't choose this themselves and they're frightened. There's a, a lack of safety, there's a lack of feeling of knowing anything about the future. And, you know, we've been in Christian ministry for years and then all of a sudden God came along and just cut through it and broke our heart for this particular issue for these kids. And we discovered that with the 48,000, it was 43 when we started, 48,000 kids in out-of-home care, that there's only 23,000 carers in Australia. And then we looked around the church, and I am on the staff of a church that has 4,000 people through on a Sunday. 4,000 people. And we found three 
three families involved in foster care. And we went, there is something wrong. Like, there's something seriously wrong when we are called the people of God and his instruction to his people is, you care for the landless. And yet we have gotten to the point in this nation where we are not putting ourselves out on the line for that. Well, we are somehow figuring out ways to look and feel like the world around us when we've got a God who has a generous heart, who is counterculturally generous and counterculturally chasing down the landless, the uninherited, the person who has no say in what's going on in their life, that he actually wants to chase them down and yet we've got churches full of people who are not responding to that. There's something within me that just goes, no, we've got it wrong. We've started to focus on the wrong things because the heart and the character of God says, you display my character and my heart to the broken and the dying world around you. That is who I am. That's why I set up the people of Israel. That's why you've been grafted in. What fascinates me about this whole thing with with, uh, Deuteronomy and the way that God spoke to them is that all the way throughout the Old Testament, you see the Israelites totally missing the mark. God comes, comes and says to them again and again, why are you neglecting the orphan? Why are you neglecting the foreigner? Why are you neglecting the widow? And again and again, he calls them to account and he says, this is who I am. You must do these things. Stop your meaningless sacrifices, he says in Isaiah. Stop your meaningless festivals and start to care about the people I care about. And he hammers them and he hammers them. And what I find absolutely fascinating and wonderful is that there is a point in Scripture where the people of Israel get it right, where God's people get it right. Do you know where it is? Anybody care to guess? Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says this, describing the new church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. And now listen, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke, breads in their, uh, broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. History books actually have some amazing examples of what the early church used to do. And um, one of the the big ones that actually started to change what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time is that back in those days because poverty was so big with so many people in the Roman Empire um, exposure was common and exposure was basically a form of infanticide if you had a child that you didn't want you had a child that you didn't feel like you had the funds to be able to um, look after then what you would do is leave them out uh, on the rubbish dump or on the docks Um, and they would call that exposure. Basically means that they'd be exposed to the elements or they would be taken by wild animals and they would die. The idea was, basically, this was your form of getting rid of a child that you didn't want. Of course, when you you have an empire that's struggling with poverty, 
which uh, the Roman Empire was, um, generally people would want one child and they wouldn't want a girl. They'd want a boy because a boy was going to fa- uh, carry on the family line. The boy was going to carry on the, uh, the inheritance and become the heir. And so what would happen is that people would have the children and if they had a girl, often the girls were the ones who were being exposed. They were out, out there, put out on the rubbish dump and left to die. And so the early church, the history books tell us, would go every morning. They would get up, houses full of people, get up and go down to the rubbish dump and check how there are any babies that have been left here. Go down to the docks, are there any babies that have been left here? And they would pick them up and they would bring them back and they would raise them as their own. Fascinatingly, without any money. It's not like they were wealthy and they were able to do it. They just went, no, this is, you know... These kids were created in the image of God, therefore we're going to do this. And so they would bring these children into their homes and they would raise them as their own. And they would be raised uh, understanding who God was. They would see the love and the father heart of God. This was God's people saying we are going to represent his character to the world around us. Grabbing these children, bringing them in and raising them as their own. A fascinating thing happened. By the, uh, in Roman law at the time... The age for marriage for a girl was 13. Far too young, yeah? But the church went, no, we're not going to allow our girls to be married at 13. We're going to make it 16, which I still think is too young. But, you know, back in the day, that was a big deal, right? So they said 16. But, of course, when you've got a male-heavy society, everyone's looking for a wife, right? And the only place they could find a wife was in the church. So you've got all of these eligible bachelors turning up and going, we want your girls. We want your women. All these virginal young women brought up with these fantastic morals. And the men are turning up and the church are going, you can't have them at 13. Sorry. And then they allowed their girls to be married at the age of 16. And fascinatingly, Rome started to notice. Because they look and they're going, hang on a second. Your girls aren't dying in childbirth. How extraordinary. Because, you know, when a 13-year-old tries to give birth, that's a bit of a problem. When a 16-year-old tries to give birth, it's not so much of a problem. So all of a sudden, the Roman Empire are discovering that women are dying less in childbirth, and they realize, hey, you Christians are onto something. This is extraordinary. And they changed the law. This is... God's people going, we're just going to show you another way. We're not going to bring out our billboards and our placards and stand there and go, you should change the marriage law. Infanticide should be illegal. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're just going to show you a different way. We're going to show you a countercultural way. We're going to display it for you. And they ended up changing the fabric of society because of their actions, not because of their words. You know, when I I look at that, I'm inspired by that because I think, man, there's so much rubbish that we have to deal with in our society, so much stuff that we can be angry about, so much stuff that we can be offended about, that we can be frustrated with, that we want to stand up against. But so often we're prepared to talk about it or we're not prepared to actually do anything. And I actually think what God is saying to us is, I need for you to represent me like physically do what I have done for you. I am the God who brought you out of slavery and oppression. I am the God who delivered you. So I want for you to bring others out of that place and I want you to deliver them. 
And you will actually find that when you physically respond and start to do the things that are represented in my character, that people will see the power of God and it will change their minds and it will change their lives. These are some of the things that were said uh, about the early church. During the so-called Roman peace, the Pax Romana, only, powerf- only the powerful set the terms of justice. The weak had no choice but to, subje- to be subject to those terms. Early Christians said to Rome Caesar, we will take care of your sick. We will feed your hungry. We will shelter your widows. We will adopt and raise your children with special needs. We will take in your pregnant mothers. And by the third century AD, the fabric of Roman society was transformed. Tertullian said this, For our funds are not taken and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls, destitute of means and parents. This one fascinates me. Emperor Julian, this was a Caesar in the day, hated Christians, hated Christianity. And he writes a letter to his pagan high priests. And this is what he says. These impious Christians not only feed their own, but ours also welcoming them with their agape. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Christians devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their errors. So he's grumpy about it, but he's talking about it. Oh, wow. Isn't it just so much better for us than to to be standing against society to be people who want to serve society the way that Jesus did, the way that God has asked us to, to represent his character to the world around us. There's a, um, there's a church in Colorado who started up a uh, project called Project 127, and it's a representation of James 127 where it says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from, from being polluted by the world. I just go, man, if there's one verse in Scripture, he's basically saying religion that God accepts is that. Wow, really? So you're basically saying <laughs> that if I want to please God with my faith, I need to care for the landless. I need to care for the orphan of the day. And once I do that, my faith is acceptable to God. Like that is a statement, yeah? Now this pastor in Colorado uh, was inspired by that verse. And in 2008, he rallied churches and helped empty Colorado's foster care system of the more than 800 children who were waiting for homes. The numbers speak for themselves. 875 were waiting in Colorado's foster care system in 2007. And one year later... There were no children waiting. Zero. All had been placed in homes thanks to an idea from this pastor. His message, that it is possible for people of faith to step up and to open their lives and their hearts and that a foster care system can be emptied. No one person can do it. We can take one child. My wife and I dove into the process. Personally, we have six children, five adopted, one at a time. We have room for one more. God will figure the rest out. That's what he said. I just go, wow, look at the, the possibilities for us to step in, to 
represent God's character to the world around us. Do you know there are 1.6 million Christians in church on a Sunday in this country? Feels like less, yeah? 1.6 million. And there's 48,000 kids in out-of-home care. This is a problem we could fix tomorrow. And the hope and the future that can be spoken into the lives of children who are destitute of that hope and that future, who may never get the opportunity to see and to understand and to know the Father heart of God. Man, how enormous and wonderful and privileged is the possibility there for us as his people. God's people in this country could empty the foster care system and we could see all of those kids free, free and thriving as they understand and get to know the character of God. Powerful, yeah? So, this interesting thing happened over the past couple of years. We've been running this organisation ARC for um, four years now, four and a bit years now. And... Um, Last year, um, on Orphan Sunday Worldwide, which is a terrible, terrible name for anybody in Australia, like we would just never use the words, and no foster kid ever wants to be called an orphan, it's just terrible. Um, but there is, a, there is a, a thing, a movement worldwide called Orphan Sunday. So we decided, uh, because ARC is the only organisation we know of in this country raising up Christian foster carers, um, that we would change the name. So we decided to call it Foster Adopt Sunday, and it was on the second Sunday of November last year. And um, we had a panel at our church, got some people together, got a representati uh, representative of DHS uh, to sit, to talk to people or whatever. And we ended up asking people, are you interested? Do you want to find out more about this? We had about 70 people turn up to an information night, and they found out more about foster care. And then 30 families said, yes, we want to be contacted by a foster care agency. Foster care agencies then uh, vet, you know, find out about your, your life. For some people it's like, yeah, the wife was on board but the husband wasn't, you know, and so a few people were weeded out. We had about 15 families in the end say, yep, we want to go through and they were pre-screened and it was all good. So we're kind of looking at that going, you know, you've got a church congregation of 40, uh, 4,000 4, people um, You've only got 70 turn up, just like that's not great. And then you've got 30 people put the hand, the 30 families put the hand up, and you go, and that's not great. And then you have 15 people go through, um, 15 families go through training. We're going, that's not great. We want to serve the community around us. Why? Because God has placed His countercultural character within us, and He has asked for us to step out and make a difference to the world around us. He's asked for us to be the ones who step out and go, hey, guess what? We're generous. Why? Because we serve a God who is generous. We step out of our comfort zone. Why? Because God steps out of his comfort zone. We step into the lives of people who are desperate for love and hope and a future. Why? Because God stepped into my life when I was desperate for love and a hope and a future. We represent the character of God to the world around us, and that is what makes us his people. That is what he has commanded for us to do. And so I'm standing here today, fascinatingly, as this was set up before DHS asked us to start this Gippsland project. And you guys are the first congregation I get to share that with. The opportunity for God's people to step in and to go, yep, I want to be a part of that. 
I want to show our government agencies who have lost all of their affection for God's people that he has a countercultural heart and he is desperate to bring people to himself and show them his love. The one last thing I think. People often say to me, I hope that you're not going around to places and saying that it's easy. <laughs> and I go, I never say that. <laughs> I can promise you, I never say that. It's not. These kids are complex. There's complex issues. There's trauma. There's malfunction. There's behavioural issues. There's neglect. There's a whole lot of stuff that they bring with them. But I think about what God did with me and what he does with the absolute grot in my soul on a daily basis. And I go, he calls me out of my comfort. He calls me out and says, how about it? There's a story that Michael Frost told a couple of years ago about how he went, he was invited to a communion service of a friend of his and uh, they had it in their chapel and they had lined the place with black plastic. They'd taken out all the seats and lined the place with black plastic right to the walls. And, and he said as they walked in, he said he noticed first of all the black plastic and thought, well, this is an interesting communion, communion service. But also there was this enormous pile of garbage in the middle of the room. And he goes, I don't mean hard rubbish. I mean garbage, complete with meat juice trickling through the, like, down like rivers through the black plastic. He said, we were standing there without our shoes on and the meat juice was kind of flowing toward my socks. He said, it stank. It was absolutely disgusting. It was like when you walk in and you're just standing in the middle of fresh compost, just going, ugh. And he said, it was hard to even concentrate on anything that was going on because they're just standing there with this absolute mountain of garbage in front of them that reeked. And he said, eventually, there's a couple of guys came out. They had their robes on. And uh, must have been Anglican or something, I don't know. And they come out with their robes on and they, and they walk out the front and they say, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper in communion today. And then the two of them took off their robes and waded into the garbage. And they stood there, the garbage up around them. And one of them reached in and pulled out a bottle of wine. And one of them reached in and pulled out a loaf of bread, thankfully wrapped in plastic. And they said, we're going to share today and communion around this trash pile because I want for you to consider that when Jesus stepped out of glory and stepped into this world that pile of garbage is exactly what it would have felt like for him when he left the throne room of heaven the glory of heaven and stepped onto this earth into your life into my life into all of the sin and the filth that we see and ignore every day it would have felt like wading into garbage and he chose to do that for us never once has anything that God has ever asked us to do to make a difference in this world been about our comfort it is always about his heart for the world around us and so I want to ask you today not just in regards to the kids although please in regards to kids what is it that he is calling you to do to turn up the dial on the way that you represent his character to the world around you? What is it that he is asking from you today 
that allows you to step out of the comfort that you see every day and step into the filth and the garbage of humanity around you the way that he did for you so that you can show the counter-cultural, generous love of God. Would you stand? And I'd love to just pray for us all. Father, I thank you so much for your heart, that you have always been generous, that you have always been countercultural, that you have always been different. The moment that the fall happened, you became the other. Because we have become naturally selfish and naturally self-focused because of sin. And yet you have always been other-focused. You have always been loving. You have always been giving. The generosity of your heart toward broken people, toward your creation, can't even, it can't even be explained. It is so extraordinary. You are so very other. And I thank you, Lord, that you have brought us into your family. Lord, that you've shown us that love, that you've shown us that generosity, that you have shown us that countercultural mercy and love. And that each of us have had the opportunity to experience that and to know you. It is such a privilege. And yet I also know, Lord God, that there is a, a, a world out there, a broken and dying world that is in desperate need of seeing that countercultural you that countercultural love and generosity lived out through people who aren't trying to be like everyone around them but are trying to be different, trying to be wholly other because you are wholly other. And so, Lord, as we stand here before you today, we just want to say, would you speak? Would you be loud for us? Would you be overt to us? Would you let us know the prompting of your spirit? Would you bring us to a place where we are so aware of what you're asking of us that it brings us to a place where there's only two choices, to obey or to disobey. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the courage to choose obedience every time. I want to ask, Lord God, that this church would be a lampstand in the area of showing your generosity of spirit to the world around them. That even going throughout this week, Lord God, in our families, in our um, workplaces, Lord God, that we would show your generosity, that we would show your countercultural character. And I pray, Lord God, that as you choose to make your presence known and even start to shine a light into places in our society who have only known darkness in regards to the church, even as we start to stand up and show government agencies that we want to serve and we want to do so with pleasure because our God is servant-hearted. Lord God, that you would give us absolutely everything we need to do that. Or that you would give us wisdom, that you would show us the way forward, that you would open the doors, that we would be able to seamlessly walk in the places that you have set before us because we're your children and because this is your heart. And I pray, Lord God, that for those people here today who know that you have called them to look after vulnerable kids, the social orphans of our day, that you would give them the courage to follow that through and that this would be the beginnings of us responding to the needs in this area. I thank you for what you have done. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for what you will do. 
You're so, so gracious to us. You have given us so, so much. Just for a couple of moments, let's just stand before her and ask, what is it you're asking of me, Lord?